please be advised. We will be discussing subjects that may not be suitable for all audiences, and will include subjects that some will find challenging, traumatic, or triggering. Welcome to You Don't Fight Alone, a podcast sharing the stories of those of us successfully living with mental illness and how we got here. I'm hesitant to tell you what my rock bottom moment is because I feel like maybe I haven't experienced it yet, unfortunately. Uh, my name is Texana, um, and my current diagnosis is depression and anxiety. Um, so I grew up in a very sheltered, very Baptist home. Um, I'm a child of the ministry. My dad and my grandfather were both pastors, and uh, the rest of my family um, are in music ministry within the church. Um, And for those of you who aren't aware, uh, there's a lot of stigma surrounding mental illness and how we treat or even acknowledge it in the Christian community. Um, So for the longest time, I experienced debilitating anxiety without even the hope of treatment or any type of service to help alleviate some of my, my issues. Um, I moved to Colorado when I was 19. And within a year met the person who's now my husband. Um, and he grew up very differently than I did. He grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in the South. Um, and his family has always been very acknowledging and supportive of his mental health journey. Um, he has clinical depression. Um, so he has tried medications in the past. He's been to therapy. Um, and his family has really just, uh, pushed him very supportively through this journey or, you know, even just stood by his side when, when he didn't want any pushing. And on my side, it was just like, if you're a minor in the home, these are the feelings you're allowed to feel. And if they're not on this list, we're not talking about it. (laughs) And I would be scared too anyway. Um, so when I first started dating my boyfriend, who is now my husband, um, it was good for a few months. And then I just remember I was, I was 20 and I was in traffic actually right around here. I lived on Colfax and Josephine at the time. And, um, I think I was just on like 18th or something and the traffic was bad. And I just remember feeling anger for the first time in my life, like true, true. Like I had never actually felt the feeling of anger before, Um, and I think it was because my feelings of fear had always trumped my feelings of anger, um, in my household growing up. And it was like, just like I could feel everything shaking loose. And from that kind of like pushed into this period of depression that kind of was coming out of my senior year of high school, but that really just like with my like newfound anger became like the perfect storm for all of my relationship issues and the way that I viewed the world and myself and my abilities. Um, and so eventually 
My husband and his family kind of encouraged me to go see their family GP. I didn't even go see a psychiatrist or a medical, you know, I'm sorry, a medication manager. Um, I just saw a general practitioner and I think maybe we talked for like a minute and I just couldn't hold it together. And he was like, you absolutely need some help. Um, And so just from that, like, I just like started sobbing and I think it wasn't, it wasn't for anything other than just like the relief of being acknowledged. I am a poor person. I'm a poor person. I, (laughs) I teach children with autism and I tour. So neither one of those career opportunities really have me rolling in the big bucks or anything. So um, I feel like I need to talk to someone, <laughs> probably. Um, two, two issues with that. My first issue with that is it costs money. I don't spend money because I don't have it. So there's that. And then the second snafu in this equation is that I typically find myself to be more capable of pulling someone through a mental crisis than whoever it is that I'm paying to do that for me. So I don't really like to pay someone for their time when I have to drag them through the hour. (laughs) Um, I would love to find a therapist that I felt like I could come to for wisdom. I could come to for support. I could come to for something that I don't already have. But the people that I have talked to thus far have not been that for me. And I, I admit and, and um, acknowledge that I haven't tried as hard as I could to find the best therapist. But I think therapy and medicine both fall into a category of needing to trial and error the dish out of it to get what you need going on. Um, and I definitely have not put in the work in the therapy department, but I think I need to because, um, when I think about my childhood and I think about my relationship with my dad and my relationship with my mom, they were split. Um, and it dawned on me recently that when I try to conjure any memories of my time with my father, I can only think of like one scenario, like one room in the house, one age that I was, one night in my life. And it's really hard for my memory to expand to any other experiences that I've had with those family members in that house in that time of my life. And when I think about my childhood with my mother, all I can think about are very traumatic memories. And I know that I've had some wonderful times. So that is a source of pain and I should probably work through that. I was driving home to my boyfriend, we were living in this carriage house on that big red house behind um, Pinche Tacos, like 
just right there. There's like this big, huge red house. So we lived in the carriage house at that place. It was like 550 square feet. I had a 120 pound dog and two people living in that house. <laughs> um, I was never making enough money. You know, I, I was a host at a jazz club. I took care of this kid, took care of that kid. I, you know, played the occasional gig. Um, and I just remember, oops, turn this off. Um, I remember coming home after like feeling anger for the first time and it was only like four minutes till I was going to be like at my doorstep and my, I knew my boyfriend was going to be there and I just didn't even, I don't even think I told him. I just, he could tell something was wrong. He asked me what was wrong and I was just like, I'm just like upset right now but I didn't I couldn't like how are you supposed to be 20 years old and be like I think I just got angry for the first time <laughs> so um and that just kind of spun out of control so the first time I felt anger was like oh that is so scary and I hate it a lot and then it just happened more and more and um then my anger was um a lot of times uh sparked by my relationship um, which made it really difficult for my husband, my boyfriend at the time, who is a pretty passive person to deal with that. Um, and normally when I get angry, I can feel it like coming, <laughs> I can feel it coming on. <clears throat> and I start to get scared of myself when that happens because I just haven't figured out how to pump the brakes. I don't know how to gracefully. I don't know how to safely. I don't know how to and still get my point across because I'm uh, upset about something at that time. You know, something was important enough to me to where now I'm a danger to myself. I'm so angry. So I can't like the the resolution of the issue has to be big enough to encompass the resolution of my issue before my anger became the issue. You know, so I'm not going to back down until I've figured out a solution to my initial problem, even though I now feel bad that I've created a more enormous issue by expressing anger the way that I do. Um, and a lot of times I feel like I can watch myself just unleashing anger, unleashing some weird hatred that isn't even truly belonging to my spouse or my partner at the time. It never is. It's always misplaced. My anger is always either, you know, situational and I always feel like a victim of my, my life, my, my situation. And somehow me feeling like a victim makes me pissed the fuck up off. I'm, I'm just so over being the underdog that I can't handle it. And then I take it out, of course, on my dear, beautiful husband who never takes his anger out on me. So that makes me feel like a winner. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. The anger, the anger part is difficult. I, you know, other than my medication manager telling me that my Zoloft kind of slows my anger time. I'm not, I'm not taking anything from anger. I don't know really if there's a good step to take something for my anger without taking some mood stabilizer that has a million like tentacles into just other parts of just regular old health. And I don't want to get into those 
those hard <laughs> the hard medications <laughs> i don't want to i don't want to develop a dependency on a mood stabilizer and then i won't even know who i am i don't know and maybe i'm just ta- you know talking out my ass and maybe, lots of people need to be on mood stabilizers i may need to be on a mood stabilizer <laughs> i don't know it just seems a little scary but this is coming from someone who waited five months to start just your regular old low-dose Zoloft. So. Nigel's dad is a dentist and all of his friends are doctors and um, his parents just mentioned that like almost everyone they know is on some type of antidepressant and that there isn't any shame in trying to find the medication that's right for you and that that makes you feel like you've found your place in the world. Um, And so just knowing that it was less a, hey, it seems like you need some help. Why don't you go find it? And more of like a join us on the other side type thing um, was something where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with this. I'll, I'll try it out. I think honestly that, and my, my plan coming into tonight was to say like, this is not going to be the episode where like the girl is like, and that is how I lived happily ever after. Like, I'm going to be like, I don't have it all together. Like, I don't know what the fuck is going on half the time. And like the medication that I'm on right now, sure. It makes my life better than it was before I was on the medication, but who who knows? Maybe there's like an even better medication that I could be on that I'm not. So when I went to the GP and he was like, this is what you need. I took it. I, you know, gave it the time for the side effects to calm down so that I can like truly see how it is. Um, and it was better, but I just wonder if kind of depression was the band-aid diagnosis that I was given, given my current situation or how I seemed in the visit at the time. Um, and I just feel like I'm largely a more anxious person than I am a depressed person. Um, so I don't know. However, if I spend three days off of my antidepressant, my world falls apart. So I don't actually know. I don't know anything except for keep taking my meds, which even then doesn't happen. Like I will be on tour and like I'll run out while I'm on tour. And so I'll be like 48 hours without meds and I'll be like, I'm fine. Nothing happened. It's been 48 hours. I don't need my meds anymore. (laughs) And then 72 hours hits and I'm like, holy hell, everything sucks. Everything sucks. I can't do it. I can't do it. Somehow everything got a hundred times harder. Everyone hates me all of a sudden, you know, like I'm somehow like walking into all of these conflicts. Everything takes 10 times the effort and I'm done. I'm done. I can't lift another finger. I can't help another person. I can't fake another interaction. I can't do it. So I think a lot of times it just becomes too much. And I don't know what that too much comes from. I'm not sure if it's like, oh, my depression needs this. Or if I'm just, I have a broken psyche. (laughs) And maybe there's a lot more. Well, I know that there's a lot more that just hasn't been acknowledged that I, I need to work through. So I am not at any type of a final destination 
on this mental health journey by any stretch of the imagination. I do have a clear idea of why I take my anger out on my spouse when initially it wasn't about him. (laughs) And I think that that is because I am what I feel to be outwardly upset. I'm exhibiting behaviors of distress. You know, he can tell that I'm not in my normal state of mind, that I'm not happy. And I think that because my husband is a gentle and passive person by nature, and because probably he's been conditioned by my nutso behavior in the past, he doesn't want to delve into it, maybe because he sees my anger as a Pandora's box or my just my emotions in general as a Pandora's box. But by him not acknowledging it, it makes me more upset. So by that point, he's avoiding the issue. I'm angry about what I was angry about before. And now I'm also angry at him <laughs> for not checking on me, for not responding appropriately, for not trying to, you know, talk through it with me. And I think a lot of times I see myself as a villain when I'm angry and how revolutionary would it feel to have somebody, you know, stretch out an arm instead of put up a hand when I'm in that place. Um, So I think that definitely exacerbates my anger when my spouse chooses to turn a blind eye. Um, And then I think the other thing is, how are you going to be angry at yourself when your spouse is home? You're not. It's just, that's natural. Humans do that. You don't even have to have mental health issues to project your anger onto someone. That's just like a human flaw that everyone does. And unfortunately, I think I have it down pat. Um, so, which I, to this day, I don't know if I completely agree with, or maybe there are some exceptions to this rule, but if you're going through a tough time, if you just don't feel like you are, you know, in a safe spot, if you feel like you may be a danger to yourself or, or, you know, if you're just not feeling right and you feel like you need some help, taking medication can be like using a pair of crutches. And as your situation improves or as you learn to find a different perspective or whatever else happens on your journey, you can wean off of them or do whatever you need to do. You don't always have to use crutches. Um, however, I would love to know about a metaphor for using medication forever because I can't foresee myself ever going off of my medication and that's changed my life and I need it very much. So, but in that moment, just the acknowledgement of needing it, taking it, the fact that there wasn't any shame surrounding my, my decision to go on medication, um, was really, uh, important to me in that moment, um, and helped me make that decision a lot easier. However, my anxiety in taking medication pushed off my filling of that prescription for probably another five months. (laughs) So it was, it was a while before I even started my medication. (laughs) I don't even know if I remember 
what it was, but I do remember the moment that I decided to do it. Like, I just remember that that was really big, that I was just like, you know what? This is ridiculous. <laughs> like, it's not going to be a life or death, mo- death moment, even if it's not right. You know, like, even if I'm like, whoops, shouldn't have done that. Like, it's not going to be like some Mario game over. Like, I blink and then I'm like gone, you know? So I just decided to go for it. And um, I had a little bit of like sluggishness the first couple of weeks and like some weird cloudiness. But that kind of just went away. I don't know. I, I know a lot of people talk about being on antidepressants and how, you know, horrible it was because they just never felt like themselves or, you know, that they always had just a, a cloudy mind. But um, I feel like that isn't really my uh, experience. However, I may have just gotten lucky in the first medication that I tried being what was best for me. I would tell my younger self not to be as afraid as she was of everything. I was so afraid of my mother. She was like the quintessential Southern Baptist mom. Just if you disobey, it's going to (laughs) hurt. You have tons of shit to do at the house. If you don't do it, it's going to hurt. If you hurt, don't tell me. You know, my mom used to say, if you're not bleeding, barfing, or on fire, (laughs) don't come tell me about it. (laughs) Uh, But um, my younger sister, she's, she's five and a half years younger than I am. And she experienced some pretty significant, um, relational woes, um, with my mother. Um, I think at one point she was contemplating getting a restraining order against my mom on my mom against, I don't know how you say that. Um, it just wasn't the most safe situation. And my sister had the balls to tell my mom not to touch her. And, I never did that. Not once. I never said, get your hands off me. I never said, I don't want to live here because I don't feel safe. I never stood up for myself because I think I just, and like, I'm sure like a lot of other children in the Southern Baptist world just assumed that I didn't, I couldn't do anything for myself. Um, I didn't have those rights. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a chance in hell. And so, um, I just never stood up for myself like I should have. And I feel like because of that, I probably ended up in the church for longer than I would have been, to be perfectly honest. And I'm not saying that it was necessarily um, a terrible time. It was just a time that was kind of injecting certain beliefs and perspectives into my young life um, that now I realize are very toxic. And I don't think that it's necessarily a a malignant or malicious move on the church's part. I think that those people think they're doing what they should do, but a lot of times they just end up teaching intolerance and hate, and that's what I came away with was like just this 
belief that all of these acquaintances from school and acquaintances that I'd met along the way were going to go to hell because they hadn't accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And that didn't float my boat. Um, just because I've met so many Christ-like people who aren't followers of Christ. And people within the church can't seem to get it together. So that's kind of why I left. How would you talk to this population of people who are very sheltered and have very hard and fast beliefs surrounding the things that we're talking about on this podcast um a lot of that you know you have to think like you can't just be like what you think is wrong (laughs) like there has to be a different way around that and also there are lots of people in that community that are hurting for the reasons that we were hurting we got help for and they haven't um so I think a lot of times you can the best way I'm sure is to approach it from a perspective of sympathy you know there are people within that population that are going through a lot and they don't take their meds every morning. They don't think that they ever could. They don't have that outlet. They don't go to therapy. Crazy people go to therapy in the Southern Baptist world. (laughs) And even then it's like, "Eh, is that just like, you know, what was that saying? Like snake water? What is it? Snake oil? Yeah. Snake oil. Sun snake oil. I don't know. Anyway, I think that therapy and mental health medication in the Southern Baptist world is snake oil. (laughs) So I think that I would tell someone in the Southern Baptist world who may be dealing with any issue regarding mental health that because as you learn in an evangelical church, no one can argue with your testimony. So I will tell you that my testimony (laughs) is that my life was changed by medication, that I struggled through my every day, that I struggled through every reaction that I had to anything that I experienced, every perception that I had of my personal relationships, my, my fear of everything that I, that I ever did, that I was ever planning to do, my hopelessness, my dark and cloudy head, all of those things are, I would say, 90% managed Um, ah, that might be a lie. 70% managed by medication. (laughs) Uh, And, um, but 70 is a lot, folks. 70 is a lot. Um, so work for that 70%. (laughs) Try some, try some meds today. (laughs) Um, truly though, I like medication didn't, didn't make me lose my faith. Medication isn't the reason I stepped away from the church. Medication has helped me. Medication can help you. And nobody has to know that you take medication. Like even if you are an 18-year-old student, an 18-year-old child in your parents' home, go to the doctor on your own time. Like figure it out. Be a sneaky sneakerton. Go to the doctor and get some meds. HIPAA protects who you talk to and what you get. So you you go when you can, figure it out. And if you're not 18 yet, I'm very sorry. Talk to people. Talk to lots of people. Start start planning how you're gonna take care of yourself. Journal. Take some time for you. 
where you are, so many thousands of other people have been there before. Um, but if you're of age, just go talk to somebody. Literally. It's the easiest thing to do. I know it seems hard. It's daunting. Yada, yada, yada. Make the appointment. Talk to somebody. Fill your prescription. If you... If you feel as though your mental state isn't comfortable, isn't right, um, what do you have to lose? You know, that's kind of what it really boiled down to for me was, um, you know, is it going to be the end of the world if I go talk to somebody about this? Is it going to be the end of the world if I give this medicine a go for a couple of weeks? Um a lot of times it seems like a daunting task to go get prescribed something because that means you have to bring it up. You have to talk about it. You have to talk about how you feel. I understand a lot of times that that can be super uncomfortable, not your favorite part of the day. But in the end, that could mean that your favorite part of the day is now your most mundane part of the day because you just feel better, you know? Um, And... If you give it a couple of weeks, if you give it a few weeks and you're not feeling it, what I so encourage you to do, even though I've never had to do it, is just engage in a little bit of trial and error. Um, I know that sounds rough because we're talking about medications that alter your state of mind, alter your um, the feelings in your body, the way that you go about your, your daily life, but um, I can speak from personal experience that um, my life is a lot more comfortable and I feel like it's more worth it now. It's a lot easier just to have my eyes open and walk through the world. For more information and to donate, please visit youdon'tfightalone.org. The You Don't Fight Alone podcast is a production of You Don't Fight Alone Incorporated, produced and engineered by James Fisher and Keaton Lycom. The information presented by You Don't Fight Alone is not intended as medical advice. If you have mental health questions, please talk to a mental health professional.